0: ebooks and online retailers like amazon.com have put a strain on independent booksellers around the globe. But mom-and-pop bookshops still hold a special place in the hearts of many people, and a lot of them are holding strong against the competition. Illustrator, writer, and New Yorker cartoonist Bob Eckstein pays tribute to the independent bookstore in his new book, Footnotes from the World's Greatest Bookstores, True Tales and Lost Moments from Book Buyers, Book Sellers, and Book Lovers. Bob is our guest on this week's Cityscape. Bob, welcome to the show. Thanks, George. So here in the Bronx, a lot of people are lamenting the news that the Barnes & Noble in the Baychester area will be closing. And when it shuts its doors, the borough won't have a single general interest bookstore. What place do you think bookstores hold in today's digital
1: society? Oh, it's very important because a bookstore has a lot of roles. Um, A bookstore can be sometimes a community center. It can be a place where it inspires our our children to start reading and um, even for older people it's a place to conjugate with intellectuals and people with like-minded views and stuff so the bookstore in a main street can play a very vital role role and I think that this news that um, this woman is going to try to start um, a bookstore with actually she's going to serve wine as well so I'm all for books and booze (laughs) I've actually been in touch with her. And the Daily News has asked me to write a story about her for an op-ed. So I'm very excited about this prospect. And where does she want to open this? Well, I'm not sure. And I don't know if she knows just yet. I'm still gathering up some details. I'm actually going to be interviewing her over this weekend. But it's going to be, I think, near my old neighborhood. I grew up in the South Bronx. And we were just briefly talking to get to know each other. And we found that we had some parallels with our background, which even got me more excited about this story. And I do feel like in some way I could be of some help, get her some exposure in the daily news as a start. But she seems very together. And it is very sad that this is going to be the only bookstore in um, the Bronx. But that's where it starts. And it's, it's baby steps.
0: Yeah, but people are downright emotional about the closing of this bookstore. Why do you think people are that connected to a bookstore?
1: Oh, this this is always the case. I mean, people are so passionate about it. When I started this project, I have to say, I was not myself that much into bookstores. I, I liked bookstores. It was an assignment that I felt that, you know, was important. But as I went on the project, and in my like first year, I started getting more and more passionate. I started hearing the stories from owners and employees and customers, how much a bookstore means to people. And it was only then that I started really getting um, even more passionate about my illustrations in the book.
0: So what was the assignment that led to this book?
1: It was a New Yorker online piece. They asked me to do a piece about endangered bookstores in New York City. I mean, it could have been endangered pizzerias or something. We had bounced around some ideas and we just said, oh, let's do bookstores because that is something that we feel that is in danger and we really feel is important. But... We had such a response when that appeared. It went viral. I mean people really connected. And then that same afternoon that it appeared, the sequel appeared, I got contacted by a publisher. And they wanted to do a book. It didn't cross my mind before to do a book. And so that's why it kinda of caught me off guard and emotionally as well. It was about a year into the project that I started going home after visiting stores and I would get really excited about doing the stores, about painting these stores. I mean, I had spent the day with these owners and they would, they'd be laughing, they'd be crying. I mean, in one case I want to share quickly is um there was this bookstore that apologized for being late getting back to me with the story. We had talked, they told me they wanted to be in the book, they were excited, and they had a story. They got back in touch with me about two or three weeks later, apologizing that they would belayed because they went bankrupt.
0: Hmm. I mean, and they you know, apologized for that.
1: Exactly. I mean, I, I met a lot of interesting, nice people. And, you know, you learn, too, throughout the, the two-year project that there were a lot of people who were doing it not for the money. They really believed that they were important to a community in providing reading and books and getting people to get together because they had events that would be, there would be lectures, there would be even music. I mean, it was a hub for a lot of towns for people to to get together and to finally say, you know, this is where our culture is.
0: This is in the book. One woman spread, I think, her father's ashes around the poetry room of a bookstore in San Francisco.
1: Yes. You know, I had collected about, I, I would say about 300 stories. And that story was one of my favorites. I mean, there was a lot of good stories, but after the book came out, that's a story that a lot of people were touched by. So many people have come back to tell me how much that really got them in their heart.
0: So it started here in New York City, but then you went around the globe documenting bookshops.
1: Well, I wanted to do the world's greatest. And to be totally frank, I mean, I'd like to do a better job. If there's a sequel, I really want to get to more stores. There were some stores in Australia and in Africa that I wasn't able to include for various reasons. There wasn't quite enough stories and documentation, and I wasn't getting the full cooperation of these stores. They were hard to reach. And I wanted to make it as exotic as could be so people could find these stores and realize that they are all over the world. And I did come up with some fantastic stores in India, and I got some really good ones in China as well.
0: How did you locate the stores? What was your process?
1: I had a team of people working for me. There's no way I could have done this by myself. I mean, first of all, the Internet, of course, makes it possible for me to contact everywhere. So that's something that couldn't have happened 20, 30 years ago. But what I did was I contacted and had a lot of friends in the business get together, and they were all over the place. They met with some of the book owners that I couldn't meet myself. I mean, it would have been physically impossible for me to go to every store so I needed people to go to the places in China and the places in India, and they would document it. They would get back to me with interviews that they had done, and I even had celebrities help. I had people Such like- Such as who? Well, I had Michael Palin from Monty Python, who I know, and he was very helpful to the book. I even had Adam Ant, who- Adam Ant? Yeah, I had. You know, I grew up with him, and I- don't always,
0: drink, don't smoke, what will you do that one
1: exactly read <laughs> and you know he's really cool, and I did not know him before the book, but I learned that he's a really you know he's a really nice gentleman, and he was very much you know behind this this purpose as a lot of people when people heard the whole point of the book, they would get on board and the way I also collected some of these people was that when I started, I decided I really wanted to have a list of my favorite people in the book. I knew I wanted to have stories. I wanted to be careful. I didn't name drop too much. I, I know I love name dropping, but I did want some celebrities in it and people who I admired growing up. Even they were great thinkers or artists or musicians and comedians. Uh, there's Paul McCartney and and David Bowie's in the book. Um, Robin Williams and.
0: That's a funny story about Robin Williams too. Of course, what would you expect though?
1: Yeah, Robin Williams for me is a kind of a, it's a weird situation for me personally because. I had done a cartoon from a Robin Williams joke. Um, my best friend, uh, Len Belzer, um, is brother with Richard Belzer. We all knew Robin through him. I that's how I knew Robin Williams. I mean, I wasn't friends, but I I knew him. There was a connection. And my friend actually committed suicide mm. right before Robin committed suicide, and there is a correlation. It's not a coincidence that because it gave him sort of courage to follow through in something that he was, you know, struggling with for for some time, and that kind of gave him a push. And so, you know, um, to have Robin in the book is something I wanted to do as well.
0: I think that quote from Robin is "I love effing bookstores," right?
1: Yeah, exactly. And I actually that was the first place I decided to do a book event would be where that happened, and that was in Brooklyn. That's right in Book Court. In Brooklyn. I don't live in Brooklyn, but I'm very supportive of that store, and I'm very grateful that they've supported me. And they are a great bookstore that belongs in the book. I'd like to say that I think I've included every bookstore in the in the book is great. But what, for you,
0: makes a bookstore great?
1: It's a few things. Um, and I have to say, I mean, there's a lot of great bookstores not in the book, but I can— assure you that every store here is great. And it's a combination of historical reference. They have some kind of interesting history within the community. They reach out and do community service. A lot of the bookstores have programs set up to help writers and help uh, customers. There's like little publishing houses. I mean, like for instance, Harvard uh, bookstore, they have a printing thing. They do they, they print local artists, blah blah blah. and that's the case with a lot of the bookstores. In some cases, the store is just beautiful. There are some examples where the store is just amazing, um, and they just have, they just add to the whole you know fabric of what a bookstore could be. For instance, I went to this one boat in London that's a book barge, and it converts into the guy's home in the evenings and he began as a homeless person with no place to live. He finally found a place on the, um, on the canals and then he tried to get this business going, which was not easy at first, but eventually with the help of two partners, he got together a business where he he opened a bookstore in this, on this boat. And my funny story about that is that, um I had, drawn this bookstore many times before I got it just right, which happens sometimes with the bookstores where I I want to get the right mood and sometimes it takes a few tries. So I decided to go there in person, of course. In every case, I tried to get to the bookstore in person to draw or sketch and photograph it in person. And when I got there, we had a great time, but I couldn't just leave without buying books. He gave me that look at the end of our conversation like, well, aren't you going to go and buy books? And I had to just... (laughs) This happened to me throughout the two years. I have about 1500 bucks in my apartment. <laughs> Many I'm not going to get to, but anyway.
0: It's, wow. Yeah. So you were just buying as you went along, huh? Guilt. The guilt, the pressure.
1: They were pulling on my heartstrings because they would tell me these stories, and by the time you finished, you couldn't just say goodbye. You wanted to support them.
0: Talking about unique bookstores, another bookstore that you feature here is a theater converted into a bookstore in Argentina.
1: Yeah, you could argue that's maybe the most beautiful store in the world. And um, this was once a radio station and a theater for, um, well, a few things. It was um, for operas and it was for, um, I'm trying to think of the dance, the special dance that they do. It's the flamingo dance where that was a specialty in in Argentina. And this was back in the 1920s. And it was um, around 2000. That they converted it all into a bookstore, making the, um, the opera seats, the boxes up in the air, little areas for people to, re- to read and take books. And the stage has been converted into a cafe, and the beautiful ceiling is, is filled with, it looks like a, a chapel, like a 16th chapel painting, and it's just amazing. And, um, well, I had to add that one, of course, to the book.
0: You also feature a bookstore that was once a water mill.
1: Yeah, that's the one where Michael Palin introduced me to. It was a case in which I didn't know about the store until he told me about it. So that guy's very grateful. He's so excited. And there's a little funny story about him is that the last few days, he's become sort of a media star in Scotland. Why is that? Well, there's been a little bit of a, a twist to the story. Somebody sort of spread the rumor that I declared it the best bookstore in the world. They got a little bit carried away. I did say it's one of the greatest bookstores, but five different magazines have run stories about him and his store, and it really does kind of explain the Loch Ness Monster thing, how they took a little grain of something and they kind of ran with uh-huh. it. And now he's becoming, um, you know, he's he's doing a lot of radio. He's been telling me he's been doing all this um, interviews, you know, Explaining his big phenomenon. Look what you've done! Yes, I started the whole wheel in motion, the watermill in motion.
0: Speaking of the greatest bookstores in the world, Shakespeare and Company in Paris has been described as the world's greatest bookstore. Why?
1: Well, it just has an amazing history in literature, with the greatest literary you know figures all coming through there. There's an Ernest Hemingway story that I like to share. Is that He was nervous at book events, so he would sneak a bottle of whiskey underneath the desk, and uh, he would be fine, like, halfway through when he had a few shots in him, (laughs) and he would always bring a friend. He could never do a book event by himself.
0: That's fascinating. Who would ever think?
1: Yeah, I I would compare myself, of course, to Ernest Hemingway and wonder if he ever had to go inside window displays with hot glue guns and set up displays (laughs) like I have to do.
0: (laughs) What would you say is the best story of survival of an independent bookstore? Because it's a struggle for many of them today.
1: Wow. Well, that's a loaded question because when you ask me that, I am thinking of all the different stories I heard, and every story had, every store had its own challenges. You know, there's, of course, there's the black cloud of the online competition, and then there was... Other circumstances which made it a challenge. Um, Gee, it's it's almost case by case. That's a tough one. But I would say the people who try to be most personable were the most successful. There's a store in Europe that does a lot of contests and makes the whole experience of walking into the store amazing. I, I thought of contests, the first thing I thought of was because they have this one thing where they have this mural painted along the whole store. And within this painting, they've hidden 64 famous writers. And they had this contest where the person who could find the most would win something. I forget mm. what it was that was the prize, but that's another way of engaging their public, their, their local um, consu- consumers and getting them to feel like they are part of the store. And that whole store, I have a picture of the interior of that in the book because it's one case I really need to show the interior to do it justice. And it's like a playground. They've done a great job of making it feel like you're going into a new space, which is another lesson I learned doing these um, bookstore stories. What I found was that going into a bookstore in the the 50s and the 60s was something so special. Mm -hmm. People would go out to a bookstore. It would be like going out. It would be like going to an art gallery. You'd go to Gotham Bookmart in, in New York City, and you'd run into celebrities, and you'd have people there talking about art and talking about writing. And it was, a, it was an event. People even got dressed up nicer. So that does still exist in a small extent in Europe and somewhat in England, where going into a store in London can give you that feeling like you're going to someplace special and not just any store.
0: What store would you say is the most culturally significant that you captured in this book?
1: Wow. There's so many good choices. I mean, of course, Shakespeare has to be up there because it had so many great writers going through it, and so it has kept up with that. Um,
0: I'm thinking about Giovanni's Room in Philadelphia, which is the longest-running gay bookstore in the country, right?
1: That's another great example. The only thing about them, or I don't say they're the most significant because they have made a big impact within their community. It's not as much as some other stores have worldwide. Other stores are bigger, and that store in Philadelphia is, is actually a little bit of a smaller store, even though it's very important, and it's not, it's not ongoing now. So That's another reason why I didn't think of it initially is because it's still going, but it's more of a thrift store now, and it has a little bit of a bookshop. Whereas something like like Shakespeare or Hatchards is still a very significant player in the business right now, it's an industry mover. There's a bookstore in Massachusetts called Wordsworth that was very significant to the business. They were pioneers in some of the systems that we use today in uh, book ownership. They have they had systems where they catalog books and they had a new way of making sure there was enough stock and stuff. And it's all technical stuff I won't get into, but I do know that they would have to be considered one of the people who are pioneers in the business of of bookshops.
0: This book profiles a bookstore in Alabama that only sells signed copies. That's all they sell.
1: I love them. That store, uh, what it does is it allows, for once people to enjoy the covers again. It reminds me of like how when we buy albums and we miss the album art, and we're buying you a CD or we're getting a download. Well, this store has every single book facing outwards. So instead of just seeing the spine, which is really neat. And this store I'm very, very much indebted to because um, they were one of the first stores that ordered some books from me, and they ordered 600.
0: Ah, so your hand hurts from signing all of those?
1: (laughs) My hand does not hurt. (laughs) But I am very grateful that they see the significance in the book, and they got behind it, and they were excited and as a thank you, I gave them another painting. I did a painting of the interior of the store because I just want to do everything to show my gratitude. And this man really does believe in books. He, this guy, the owner, is Jake Reese. He, What's the name of the bookstore, by the way? It's called Alabama Booksmith. And I will try to get down there next year and, um, and hug this man in person because he really does try to help people who are, you know, trying to get their book out there. Now, that's the whole point, is to get people to see the books that are available and stuff, and not just a couple of books that are always, you know, there's, everyone knows the Harry Potter's and and Mm -hmm. the Stephen King's, but there's a whole world out there of books to, to have to be discovered. And I, this brings up one other quick point I'd just like to make, and that is I am all for also Barnes and Nobles and some of the box stores, because they play a significant part And the whole food chain with books, Uh, I learned a lot about uh, bookstores and stuff. And one thing I learned was how charitable they were. Barnes & Noble giving lots of books to um, rehab centers, hospitals that have libraries. And they do a lot to try to help. But one other thing they do is when they pre-order books, they are paying big publishing houses Giving them money that allowed them to take risk on other people, and not just go the safe route. So instead of just always giving, let's say, the big book deals to the surefire people, they can now reach out and say, "We're going to try to try some other titles that may or may not take." And Barnes and Noble allows them to have the flexibility to do that. I mean, because I know the margin of error for all the publishing houses is really, really thin, and people like to complain that you know. They haven't done much for my book, and where's the money for my marketing? And that's because it's, it's hard for everyone. Everyone's got to kind of put their shoulder to the wheel. And I'm seeing that with people doing extra things. And, you know, I, when I have a book event, people come out to the book event from the publishing house, and people stay late at the bookstore. It's, it's hard work.
0: You referenced your vast book collection. Bart's Books in California started as a personal book collection then it turned into a store of sorts
1: exactly and they work on the honor system <laughs> what they do is they set up their books where anyone could come any hour even at night and people come with flashlights to go browsing to the books the bookshelves that are are um outside they're set up outside the store and then there's a little collection can you put the money in the can i've seen this before at golf courses where you um you want to take a bucket of bowls, you want to hit in the driving range, and you put a buck and stuff, but never a bookstore.
0: Yeah, or a roadside farmer's market, right? You take a tomato, you leave a dollar.
1: Right. And people are fascinated about this idea Well, how much you know, do people pay and do people you know, keep to the honor system. And there have been TV documentaries that, that spied out, like hid out in the bushes and filmed to see if people were stealing books. And in most cases, it seldom ever happened. I mean, people who love books are good people, and they most of the time, everyone paid.
0: You talked about how nice these bookstore owners, but Myopic Books in Chicago has been described as the soup Nazi of the bookstore industry.
1: Yeah, I had some examples of people who were angry with me for various reasons. Most of them, I mean, there's very few cases of this, but most of the people who were upset with talking to me were just suspicious that I was going to write a doomsday thing. And that's totally understandable. But there was one store that was um, needed to be in the book because they were one of the greatest bookstores and they actually would make the top list. So they belonged on the list. And that's, um, yeah, this place in Chicago has been known as the soup Nazi of bookstores. And for good reason, they're a little bit upset when people go into a store with just a cell phone and their attention is to browse for a book and then later buy it online. Mm. And this is an ongoing problem. And this is something I talk about a lot is that the bookstore is not a restroom and it's not a place to just bargain hunt. And you do need to support your local bookstore for the reasons we mentioned before. The physical tactile experience of going in is it really irreplaceable. And there's so many reasons I could go on about how online shopping can't provide that, that type of support. So in their case, though, they might take it a little bit to an extreme with signs and a little bit of that feeling where you go in and the people are petrified. I actually spoke to a few customers who were very scared to go in, but they actually keep going back. (laughs)
0: Let me ask you a little bit about you, because I understand that you went to college on a tennis scholarship. Is that right?
1: That's true. Um, I went to school initially at Holy Cross, and then my family moved out to Long Island, I didn't go my senior year, and I wasn't sure how I was going to get into college, but thankfully I had a friend teach me tennis a couple of years earlier, and I used to practice and practice, and I I got pretty good, and I was given a handful of scholarships. Um, I also worked on my artwork. My artwork is not so different than it was when I was a teenager. I used to work in crayons, uh, French crayons, which gave a very rich feeling and look. I try to achieve now, which is that sort of stained glass look, but it feels like there's a lot of light coming from behind. And anyway, I, I did apply to art colleges, even though I had not finished high school, and I did get into Cooper Union and other schools for full scholarships. So I, luckily, I, you know, I was very lucky, and I got a chance to go to college.
0: I was going to ask the question, how did you become an illustrator? But that's something you, it sounds like you wanted to do from I an early did. age.
1: Yeah, growing up. When I was very young, I remember going through Sports Illustrated. The magazine was the one magazine I started with as a very little kid. I liked, like all kids, you like sports. It's like one of the first things is you sort of see the the colors and the vividness on TV of football. Because, you know, that's, that's what you're exposed to first. And I'm talking now about being nine or eight years old. But Sports Illustrated would run illustrations all the time of great artists like Robert Cunningham and Robert Weaver. And these guys introduced me to illustration and art. And um, I did dream as a teenager I would one day work for Sports Illustrated, which luckily I did do later. And when I did this book, I spent some time going around the country, going to museums to be inspired. I wanted to be sure I was prepared by by this and I was going to be exposed to the art that, did move me and surround my workspace with that. And then I went back to those guys, Robert Weaver and Robert Cunningham and the guys who were in Sports Illustrated. Another person would be Bernie Fuchs and, and Walt uh, Spitzmiller. And I posted examples of their work, which I didn't copy, but the color and the composition and, and those elements were something that drove me on this book to try to achieve that sort of level, mm-hmm. that, that bar
0: Your cartoons appear regularly in The New Yorker. How did that get started for you?
1: Well, The New Yorker was a fluke. Um, That was on a dare. When I had finished my first book, The History of the Snowman, um, I got to know some of the cartoonists because I wanted an intermission in my first book in case people found it boring. So I decided I'm going to have the world's greatest snowman cartoons in the middle of the book. And one person I met during that time was... Sam Gross, he's the world's greatest living cartoonist right now. And he's a regular New Yorker cartoonist. For my birthday, he invited me out to the New Yorker lunch that they have on Tuesdays, which is something, that unfortunately, they don't still do. But back then, you'd have all these wonderful cartoonists gather once a week. And during that lunch, I got a chance to meet some people like Gaham Wilson and people who I grew up as a kid admiring And I had a really good time, and the food was very good. And I asked if I could come back. And they said, well, you could, but come back with 10 sketches. Well, I couldn't do it because I just couldn't come up with 10 ideas. It was very hard. But I did come back two weeks later, and um, Sam Gross introduced me to Bob Mankoff. And Bob Mankoff wound up buying the first cartoon that I showed him. It was the first cartoon I did, Hecklers on Poetry Night,
0: (laughs) <laughs>
1: and I did not know at the time how hard it was to get into the New Yorker. I mean, I wasn't really experienced with that. And there was a whole bunch of people in the office. and I assumed that we all sold cartoons, but I quickly found out that it was beginner's luck because it was about another year of submitting cartoons every week before I sold my second. So that's how I got on that crazy ride of the New Yorker, which at the moment I'm not doing as much. I'm very busy with the books and The New Yorker is also focusing more on younger cartoonists. So at the moment, it's been difficult to get back in, but I hope to. I was in a couple of weeks ago. I did a Darth Vader at a high school reunion cartoon.
0: (laughs) Bob Eckstein, thank you so much for coming in.
1: Thanks so much, George.
0: Bob Eckstein is an illustrator, writer, and New Yorker cartoonist. You can learn more about his work, including his latest project, on bookstores at bobeckstein.com. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Bodarkey. My thanks to producers Claire Drake and Zach Zalas. Thanks for listening. It's WFUV and WFUV-HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music
1: discovery starts here.